Welcome to Purdue Commercial Agcast, the Purdue University Center for Commercial Agriculture's podcast featuring farm management news and information. I'm your host, James Minnert, Director of the Purdue Center for Commercial Agriculture, and joining me today is my colleague, Dr. Michael Langemeyer, Associate Director of the Center. We're going to review the results from the September Purdue University CME Group Ag Economy Barometer Survey of farmers from across the nation. Each month, we survey 400 farmers across the U.S. to learn more about their perspective on the ag economy. This month's Ag Barometer Survey was conducted from the 19th through the 23rd of September. And Michael, the index, the Ag Economy Barometer Index, dropped five points this month um, to a reading of 112. Last month, we were at 117. Our low in recent months has been 97. Um, but if you compare the barometer this month to this time last year, we're down about 10% compared to September of 2021. And when you look under the hood a little bit, look at the index of current conditions and the index of future expectations, they were both down this month. Um, a little bit surprising to me, the current, con index, current condition index declined more than the future expectation index. The current conditions was down nine points versus last month. And that leaves that index down about 22% compared to this time last year. Future expectations index was down three points compared to last month. And that leaves it just 2% lower than it was this time last year. Uh, what's your take? I was a little surprised that the current conditions index was down more than the future expectations. And the reason I was a little surprised uh, about that is 2022 is going to end up being a pretty good net income year for farmers in general, whereas there's a lot more uncertainty as you move into 23 and beyond. And, and so for that reason, I was, I was a little surprised that the current, current conditions index came down as much as it did. Yeah, and I, I guess we should probably emphasize both of these indices are at relatively low levels. They're not uh, record low, but they if you look at the life of the survey, um, this, is, this is not a time when people are feeling good about either current conditions or future expectations, right? Yeah, that's definitely the case, and we're down significantly what, where we were in, in uh, summer of 21, for example. Yeah, summer 21, and, and especially, I mean, if you look at these indices, they both were very strong at the tail end of 20 and the beginning of 2021. So the decline in sentiment um, has been pretty remarkable over that time frame, and, and we had a little blip up here for a couple of months, and now another downturn. So we'll see what happens in the upcoming uh, 30 days. But I agree with you. The uncertainty about the future seems to me to be tremendous, and yet the survey didn't necessarily uh, pick that up this month. Um, we continue to ask people what their biggest concerns are for their farming operation in the upcoming year. This is a question we started using in July, so we've got three observations now. No big surprise, higher input cost is coming in as the number one concern. The percentage of people choosing that as their top concern uh, dropped a little bit this month. This month it was 44%. Last month it was 53% of the people in the survey. So a little bit of a change there. Probably the most interesting change on this uh, this question this month, Michael, was the fact that more people expressed concern about rising interest rates. This month, 23% of the people in the survey chose that as one of their biggest concerns. Last month that was about 14%. So that was a pretty big jump in one month. Uh, enough to be certainly significant from my perspective. Maybe the other thing that was a little bit interesting was lower crop and or livestock prices, the percentage of people choosing that declined again. Uh, the first time we asked that this question, 19% of the people chose lower crop and livestock prices as their number one concern. That declined last month to 11%, and this month dropped again to 8%. So were you surprised? 
Yes, I was, and 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 there's a couple of interesting things about things about this question, uh, particularly when you look at this month's results. If you add up higher input costs, rising interest rates, and availability of inputs, 80% is related to inputs. I mean that, and and you know that kind of explains the 8% on on the lower crop and livestock prices, and and 11, 12% on policy. That's just incredible. If you stop to think about that, 80% of the concerns is related to inputs, and so that's number one. Number two, and I think you alluded to this, the availability of input issue has not gone away. Uh, there was still 14% said that was a big concern uh, of theirs right now. Yeah, if you think back to the early days of the pandemic, I don't think any of us expected to be talking about availability of inputs, uh, whether it be for agriculture or elsewhere in the U.S. economy, and yet it continues to be a stumbling block uh, in a wide variety of areas. And you know, the availability question relates to different things to different people at different times. Uh, earlier in the year, I think we had people concerned about uh, raw inputs like fertilizer. Um, more recently, I think it probably focuses on maybe a little broader perspective. Uh, when we talk to farmers individually, one of the things they bring up is the difficulty in, in sourcing parts for farm machinery. So there's, there's a lot going on there, but that issue just is reluctant to go away, it seems like. Uh, the Farm Financial Performance Index didn't change this month. It came back at a reading of 99. That's the same as last month. It is higher than it was back in the spring. Back in the spring, it was at 81, went up a little bit in June to 83, went up again in July to 88, and now we've kind of plateaued here a little bit at 99. To put that in, uh, in perspective, you know, you go back to this time last year, that index was at about 110. So it is weaker than, than it was this time last year. Um, but, you know, you look at the life of that question, um, uh, it's it's not the weakest reading we've had. It's certainly not the most positive either. But I think one of the interesting things is at this stage of the season, people are starting to do some updates with respect to where their farm is from a, a net farm income perspective or certainly a taxable income perspective. And I think the rise we're picking up here relative to where it was back in May is kind of recognizing that things didn't turn out as bad as some people maybe were concerned about back in May. And so maybe that's a little bit of what's going on in the index. What do you think? Yeah, prices have jumped around a little bit. And so that's always a concern. But as we get closer to harvest, it looks like, you know, it looks like we're going to have a fairly decent uh, crop prices, particularly for corn, soybean, corn, soybeans. Uh, and so I think that's that's important. But also, as you, get, as you get closer to harvest and into harvest, you have a better idea what those yields are going to be. And so, as you said, you have more certainty about what gross revenue is going to look like uh, and, and what your net income is going to look like. Yeah, and I think there might be a little distinction here with respect to how people look at things. I think as economists, we have a tendency to look at it from a net farm income basis, uh, which is more of an accrual concept. I think a lot of people look at it more from a taxable income standpoint, and that's not going to give you necessarily the same picture. And I think from a taxable income perspective, uh, most people are going to be in very good shape here in 22, right? Definitely, that would be definitely the case because you early in 22 they were selling that uh, selling 21 crop at, at pretty good prices, and so and so from a taxable standpoint, 22 is going to be a good year. So, Michael, going back to April, we've been asking a question and ask people what they expect to see happen with respect to input prices for the 2023 crop relative to the prices they paid for the 2022 crop, and I want to emphasize that because that's asking a, a comparison. Of, relative to what I would characterize as some relatively inflated crop uh, input prices here in 2022. And as you look at the responses we've gotten since April, it's been interesting. They've changed. Um, you know, I'm, I'm looking at some of the categories. For example, the uh, percentage of people who said that input prices in 23 would rise 
one to nine percent. Back in April, there was only 18 percent in that category, and that has consistently gone up. That is now the dominant category uh, with almost 40 percent. I think 38 percent of the people in the survey said that they expect to see input prices rise between one and nine percent. On the other end, uh, the percentage of people who thought there'd be no change in input prices, back in April, that was 28% of the people. Uh, now it's down to 19%. Um, and then if you look at the folks that were expecting input prices in 23 to actually decline relative to 22, um, in April, that was 18%. Uh, this month, that's down to 10%. So. You know, Michael, I know you pay pretty close attention to input prices as you work on the crop budgets. Uh, as you look at what farmers are telling us versus what you're picking up elsewhere, what, what are you seeing? I think it's very consistent with, with my estimates of, of 23 production costs. Uh, I've looked at corn and soybeans specifically, and I think input costs could be up 5-6%, uh, which would be very similar to inflation forecasts. And so, and so it seems like producers are thinking that uh, agriculture inputs are going to follow general inflation, whereas in 22, they were substantially above general inflation. So I think that's an interesting result. Another thing that, that's very clear uh, to me is, is there's a lot fewer people the last two or three months that think we're going to see these large increases like we saw in 22. I mean, the percent that think there's going to be 20% or more increase in input prices over uh, the 21 input prices now is less than 10%, whereas in, in April and May, that was close to 20%. Uh, it was over 20% uh, in, in April. And so, and so that, that's, uh, that means that we're kind of, we're kind of uh, 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 converging, if you will, to something that's closer to what general inflation is probably going to do in 23. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And the other point that I, when I look at these results in, in aggregate, is it speaks to the tremendous amount of uncertainty that exists. So we've got, in this month's survey, 9% of the people in the survey think input prices in 23 will be up by more than 20% or more. At the same time, 10% um, of the people in the survey think that input prices are actually going to go down in 2023. The uh, relative spread there in those responses, you know, the, we don't have a lot of history in this question, so I don't know what they would have said five years ago, for example. Um, but I, I suspect in more normal times, we would not have gotten that level of dispersion. And to me, that speaks to the uncertainty that exists in agriculture. And it also speaks to why the index, the barometer itself, and that index of current conditions and the index of future expectations, why they are as weak as they are. I think it's this tremendous uncertainty with respect to what it's going to cost, in this case, to put a crop in the ground, uh, in other cases, what it's going to cost to feed livestock, et cetera. I think that uncertainty is what's contributing to the weakness in, in sentiment indexes. And I think, you know, if, on the consumer side, when you look at some of the other indices relative to consumer sentiment, I think it's the same thing. I think this tremendous uncertainty has left people very uneasy and contributing to these these weaker sentiment readings. What do you think? I think that's definitely the case. I mean, when you have uncertainty related to prices, we're kind of used to that. Uh, uncertainty with respect to yields, we're, we're kind of used to that. But the uncertainty related to inputs is just not something we're that used to. And as you said, I would uh, you know kind of reiterate a point you made. We're using really large buckets here. I mean, a 1% to 9% bucket, if we would have went back three, four years, that would have been extremely wide range uh, for input prices because input prices, the average before 
before 2020, looking at 10-year averages, was like 2%, a 2% increase per year. And so we're just looking at numbers that we haven't seen for a long time. Yeah, that's a good point, Michael, because if you look at the history of this question, we did ask it earlier than April. Uh, but we used narrower buckets, and we realized the buckets we were asking uh, d- simply didn't provide the uh, the spread that people were looking at. So uh, that's that's a good point. Um, the Farm Capital Investment Index declined this month. It's record low now, a uh, reading of 31, down eight points from last month. Last month's reading was 39. Our prior record low, I think, was 35. So we continue to hover in the 30s is how I would characterize that. And, you know, we've asked some questions to try and ascertain why the Farm Capital Investment Index is as weak as it is, um, given the fact that incomes have been relatively strong. Normally, you would expect to see strong farm incomes correlated with a strong Farm Capital Investment Index, and that has not been the case here, especially over the last roughly uh, 18 months or so. Um, so we, we added a question back in July primary uh, to ask people what their primary reason uh, why it's a bad time to make large investments. So this question only went to people who said it was a bad time to make large investments. And we asked them why. We gave them several choices. We said uncertainty about farm profitability, tight farm machinery inventories at dealers, um, rising interest rates, increase in prices for farm machinery and new construction. And then we had the, the catch-all category of other. So people, some people have the opportunity to choose some other reason. And overwhelmingly, the three times we've asked this question, the number one response has been the increase in prices for farm machinery and new construction is why people are saying this is a bad time. This month, it was 46% of the people in the survey. Last month, it was 49 In July, it was 44%. Um, you know, as you look at it, Michael, I think we're maybe starting to pick up a little bit of a change here again with respect to interest rates. Uh, a few more people are choosing rising interest rates as a concern. In July, only 14% of the people in the survey chose that. In August, it was 18%. This month, it was 21 uh, what do you what do you think? Yeah, and, and essentially the the increasing interest rates increases the cost uh, of buying buying the machine because you're going to have you're going to have bigger principal payments, larger principal payments uh, to, to when you purchase that machine, and so uh, it's not surprising that that's having having an impact, and that's not going to go away anytime soon. Nor is the increase in prices for farm machinery and new construction. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what the actual expenditures are uh, in this environment. Yeah, it's a good point, and. And you're right. I think as they sit down and, and visit with a, a dealership about making a purchase and look at the payment plan, uh, those principal and interest payments going out, for example, uh, five years or so, are going to look significantly different than they did uh, a year, year and a half ago. So uh, it's going to have an impact, and I think we're starting to see that uh, show up in, in the survey. Um, I want to point out, though, that as weak as the Farm Capital Investment Index is, that's a sentiment question. So is, is it now a good time or a bad time to make a large farm investment? The next question that we've been asking as a follow-up going back to, I think, March of 2020 is, what are your plans, your actual plans, for farm machinery purchases in the upcoming year compared to a year ago? And the choices here are higher, about the same, or lower. And if you look at the percentage of people saying they plan to reduce their farm machinery purchases in the upcoming year compared to a year ago. Back in March, 62% said they were going to pull back on farm machinery investments. That percentage has been declining pretty consistently since then, and this month it was down to 47%. 
I think that's an indication that people are actually, although they don't necessarily think it's a great time to make an investment, they're looking at their machinery lineup, they're looking at their taxable income situation, and starting to say, uh, maybe we'll, we'll step in and make a purchase. Yeah, and I think it's very consistent with the with the trend in the Farm Financial Performance Index. That's gone up a little bit, and and so the those that think that the, that they're not going to be buying machinery this year, it's going to be lower than than the previous year has went down. I think those are very consistent uh, way those questions were answered. And you know, similar story with respect to farm building purchases. The numbers are different, but I think the the pattern is pretty similar. Back in March, 68% of the folks in the survey said their plans for farm building purchases in the upcoming year uh, were lower than a year ago. And that number has drifted lower, not quite as strongly as what we saw in the machinery, but still this month uh, in September, it was 56%. So I think we're seeing a little more positivity there. And I think it's an indication of, of people telling us from a sentiment standpoint, they don't feel like this is a great time to make an investment. You can't get a good deal on a new tractor combine or a, a new building or a new grain bin, but that doesn't mean I won't step in and, and actually make the purchase if I need to do so and, and have the financial wherewithal to do so. So I think, you know, I think there's a little bit of a difference there in terms of what we're picking up with respect to sentiment about making investments versus uh, the reality of will I make an investment. Uh, the Farmland Value Expectation Index continues to soften, both on the short term and the long term. Farmland Value uh, Expectation Index for the short term was down five points this month to a reading of 123, that's versus 128 last month. Um, if you look at the index compared to this time last year, it's actually down about 21%. So when we ask people about their expectations for farmland values over the next 12 months, we're starting to see some evidence of softening. Um, as you th think about it from a long-term perspective, looking at this index going back to, I think, 2016, actually the beginning of late 2015 is the first time we asked this question. The index is still at a relatively strong level. 123 is, you know, if you look at the chart, which kind of summarizes the data over that time frame, it's still a pretty strong number. So it's not like people are really negative on farmland values, but they are less positive uh, about further increases than they were, uh, for example, at, at the end of 20 and beginning of 2021. The long-term index uh, down seven points compared to last month. If you compare it to a year ago, it's not down as much on percentage terms as that short-term index, but it is down. It's down 13% compared to a year ago. Um, so, Michael, you look at farmland values a lot, and you've done a lot of research on farmland values. What do you? What's your interpretation? Well, you brought up a point I think it's very important to understand, particularly when you're looking at the short-term uh, farmland value expectations index. We're still sitting at a pretty high reading compared to where we were uh, in 19 and before uh, 2019. And so this doesn't mean that land values are necessarily going to go down, but it probably does mean, and this is like we, we talked about, uh, we, we've, we've been talking about uh, you know land values in, in our webinars, what it probably does mean is we're not looking at the as large increases as as we've seen in the last 12 to 18 months. Yeah, and having said that, you know, you and I are both picking up reports here recently of record high values at, at auctions that took place in late summer and, and a few of them continuing into, into early fall. So it, we're not seeing really too much evidence of farmland value softening at the actual sale level, but we are picking up a change in sentiment among producers. So 
Uh, we started asking a question at the beginning of this year to people who say they expect to see farmland values rise over the next five years. We've been asking them, what's the main reason you expect to see farmland values rise? So we've got observations on this now going back to January. And there's been a change in the response to this question over that time frame. Back in January and February, um, and March really, I guess at that first quarter, the response was, um, the number one choice was non-farm investors. And the percentage of people choosing that was ranging between about 45 and uh, roughly 50 or 51 percent. And then starting in the spring, that number, that percentage choosing non-farm investors started uh, drifting upwards. Um, this month, it was 62% of the people who think farmland values are going to go up over the next five years think it's because of non-farm investors. Last month, it was 57%. The month before that, it was 52%. June, it was uh, 48%. So we're seeing a, a trend there. At the same time, the percentage of people choosing inflation as the main reason they expect farmland values to rise. Back in the winter and, and early spring, that was raining between about 31 and 35 percent. These last several surveys, that's been coming down. Um, July, it was 30 percent chose that as the main reason. August, it was 25 percent chose that as the main reason. This month, it was 22 percent. How do you interpret that, Michael? It's very difficult to interpret this. The inflation result probably uh, surprises me the most personally. I still think inflation is going to be pretty hot here uh, for the next year. Uh, but having said that, I mean, uh, a lot of people are talking about inflation expectations, including some surveys in, in that 3 to 6% range in 23. That certainly would be down uh, from what we're seeing in, in 22, at, at least the last few months uh, uh, in, in 22. And so, and so maybe that's what they're reading in. You know, inflation is still going to be there, but it's, it's going to be lower than what it was uh, in 22. But that's a bit of a head scratcher uh, that inflation is not still, uh, you know, very important like it was uh, was this spring uh, in this summer. It's, that's a 10 percent drop, uh, even more when you compare it to the 22 number. That's a, that's a pretty big change uh, given the fact that we still have high inflation. It is a big change. And I guess one of the keys on this question is it's a five-year question. And if you believe uh, the Federal Reserve Bank, for example, and some of the information they've been putting out following their uh, open, market committee, uh, open Market Committee meetings, they would suggest that they think they're going to control inflation within five years. And I think maybe we're picking that up. That's probably what you're alluding to. The other uh, thing that's a little interesting in the response to this question is one of the interests or one of the choices uh, that we give them on the question is low interest rates. And when we first started asking this back in the winter, January, February, we were picking up, uh, I think in January, 6% of the people said low interest rates would be the main reason they think farmland values are going to rise over the next five years. February was 9%. And it's been going lower since then. I, won't, I can't really say drifting lower because it, it dropped and then it's kind of stabilized. But this month, it dropped all the way to 1%. Only 1% of the people in the survey think low interest rates will support farmland values. And from a mathematical perspective, again, you, you've worked on this a lot, Michael. If you raise interest rates, what happens to the value of the asset? It definitely comes down. And, and it'd be interesting to ask those that think that land values are going to go down, whether the reason they think that is related to interest rates. I have a hunch uh, that that would be a very important reason. And even though the, the, the change has been relatively small, and it's still a relatively low percent that think land values are going to go down, that has increased a little bit uh, in the last month or two. And 
And uh, I think it's up to 15% uh, with at least one of the land questions. And so and so my guess is if you ask those people, uh, re, you know, the question related to interest rates, they, they would say that's the reason why I think land values are going down. Because interest rates does have a big impact on land values. I think you have just proposed a new question for the next survey. Perhaps. All right. So uh, periodically, we've been doing some questioning of, of producers about their cover crop usage, and a lot of just a lot of interest about cover crops. It's, it's usage has grown dramatically in recent years. Um, so we've been doing this. We did, we asked these questions, I think, several times in 2021. Um, and we repeated the same set of questions that we did in the fall of 2021 this month to get a little handle on with respect to what how much change there's been. 57% of the respondents in our survey said they've used, I rephrase that, they use cover crops on at least some of their acreage. And I'm going to stop right there. And that's similar to what we got last month or last year. I find that number astoundingly high. Uh, now, keep in mind, these people aren't telling us they use it on all of their farm or even a significant amount of their farm. But I, I'm still surprised that almost six out of 10 people in the survey say that they use cover crops on some of their acreage. Yeah, I'm a little surprised too. And this, this question is posed at, at crop producers, and so and so you don't have the livestock producers in there. At least the, the people that are heavy into livestock that might be using cover crops for forage reasons. Now you do have some mixed crop livestock producers in there that might be doing that, but it, it's it that seems high to me. Um, we also asked them how long they've been using cover crops. Forty uh, percent of the cover crop users have been doing it for less than five years or less. So the relatively recent adoption, which I think is consistent with what we've picked up elsewhere, 10% uh, have been planting cover crops for more than 20 years. So we've got some people that are very, uh, we'd call it cover crop devotees, right? I mean, they're really devoted to this. They think it's a, a, a integral part of their farming operation. Um, we did ask some questions to learn a little bit more about how much people are using cover crops. Just because you say you use cover crops, as we indicated earlier, doesn't mean you're using it on a widespread basis. So we asked the question annually, what proportion of your farm did you plant to cover crops? And the most common response was 25% or less of their acreage. And that was the smallest bucket. So we don't know. Some of those folks might be using it on you know, maybe less than 5%. We, don't, we simply don't know. This month, um, on this month's survey, 50% of the people in the survey who said they use cover crops said they use it on 25% or less of their acreage. When we asked it last year, we picked up some slightly larger percentages. I think in uh, August of last year, we were at 59%, uh, September 54%. Those probably aren't significantly different given the number of people in the survey, but um, so clearly, People are using cover crops in maybe isolated situations, right? Maybe on particular fields that they think would benefit in particular, and they're not necessarily using it on, on their entire operation. On uh, the other end of the spectrum, people using it on greater than 75% of their acreage. Uh, this month, I think it was about 12%. A year ago, uh, that ranged between 10 and 13%. So, um, I, I guess this kind of supports the idea that as you drive around, uh, the countryside, you don't see cover crops used on 60% of the acreage. So keep in mind, when we got that prior response and 57% of the people said they use cover crops on their farm, they're not telling us they use it on 50% of their acreage or 57% of their acreage. And this, this kind of supports that, right? 
Yeah, and this, this, this uh, when you talk to producers and when you see uh, survey results from other surveys uh, pertaining, pertaining to cover crops, this is consistent with that. Uh, you know, some people will use cover crops in certain soil types uh, exclusively, uh, and so not all of their acreage. Some will after a certain crop and not after a, a different crop, and, and so, and so you, do, you do see uh, patterns like that. And so these results aren't, that, aren't all that surprising that there's a very small percent where this is used on a, a predominant uh, percentage of their acres. We also asked people what their motivations are for planting cover crops and we gave them the opportunity to check all everything that, that applied. So we had responses that included uh, improved soil health, improved erosion control, improved water quality, carbon sequestration, and then the other category, the kind of the catch-all. And Michael, is no big surprise that the two dominant categories here were improved soil health and improved erosion control. You combine those two responses, I think, uh, you know, that they total up to, what, roughly 70%. If there is a surprise in this question, it's how low the percentage was for carbon sequestration. Only 5% of the people that use cover crops say they're doing it primarily uh, for, as a motiv motivation uh, for carbon sequestration. Last year, it was between 10 and 11%. Those two numbers probably aren't significantly different given the size of the survey responses. But uh, in general, that's a little lower than you might think given all the attention that's been made with respect to uh, signing up with these carbon sequestration programs. But when you see the percentage that have signed up with the programs, there's a lot of people that have talked to people uh, related to carbon, but there hasn't been that high a percent that have actually signed a contract. And so maybe that's what how they're answering that. Uh, I think they do know, I think a lot of people do know that if they improve soil health, they might be eligible for a, for a contract down the road. We don't know that for sure, uh, but that would be my hunch. Yeah, there's a lot going on there, I suppose. For one thing, if you've been using cover crops historically, you're probably not eligible for a carbon sequestration payment. At least it would be difficult. Uh, so that's one issue. The other issue that I think about is our previous survey work suggests that if you really want to get people interested in signing up for carbon contracts, uh, they need to increase the rates. And I, I suspect that that's part of what's going on here as well. So, um, And then we asked, uh, as kind of a wrap-up question, which statement best describes their experience with cover crops? Um, again, the majority said uh, improves soil health and crop yields. I think, uh, what, roughly three-fourths of the people in the survey chose that, that uh, these are people that use cover crops. That's consistent. It's a little lower than what we picked up last year. Last year, I think we were picking up between 81 and 84 percent. So a little bit of a difference there, but still, that's the number one. Um, we had about, oh, not quite 20 percent, 18 percent of the people in this month's survey said that it improves soil health but not crop yields. And that there's really been kind of a trade-off on those two questions, right? So one says, well, they both say improved soil health, or responses, I should say, not questions. They both say improved soil health, but one says and crop yields, and the other one says but not crop yields. And so I think what we're picking up is more people saying, well, it didn't have any positive impact on yields, but I do think it's improving soil health. Is that 
consistent with the way you look, look at that? Yes, and this is a very important result because if it's not increasing crop yields, uh, it, it's probably not going to be as profitable, or it's probably not going to be profitable. And we did ask, we did. I would like to know, we did ask some people why they discontinued uh, using cover crops, and certainly lack of profitability was one of the reasons uh, that they talked about. And so, and so that's the same old issue uh, when you deal with cover crops, is you want to compare uh, the benefits to the cost, and some people don't think the benefits outweigh the cost. And if we look at tighter margins the next couple of years with these rise in input prices, <clears throat> excuse me, uh that could be even more of an issue, right? Yeah, and so I think I think we'll definitely uh, continue to ask this question uh, in the fall of every year to, to see if this see how that changes. So, Michael, we we looked into the past at a question that we've asked uh, I think just one time previously back in 2019. Uh, we asked people, "Have you made any changes in your farming operation in response to climate change?" And two ways of looking at this. I'll, I'll give the way I look at it, and you can see what you look at it, how you look at it. In 2019. 23% of the people in the survey said, yes, we have made a change in our farming operation in response to climate change. This month, 20%. So really no change from a statistical perspective. I would argue that that's significant, the fact that roughly one out of five farmers in our survey are saying they have made some kind of a change in direct response to climate change. Because I think about that with respect to all the businesses in the U.S., how many of them could say that they've actually made an explicit change in response to climate uh, variability or climate change? And I suspect many of them would say, the vast majority would say, they haven't done anything explicitly. So I, I view this as pretty significant. Uh, I know some people take a, a more negative view and, and are surprised that it's not a higher percentage, but uh, I, I look at it as saying, gee, that's a lot. Yeah, I, w I would agree with that statement. But I would also I would also say, and we talked about this earlier, we were talking about this earlier, I think if you gave them a list of things that we think about when we think about climate change, tile drainage, adding irrigation, maybe change, even changing seed varieties in, re in response to, uh, to climate change, if we gave them a list of things like that, that 20% would be even higher. Yeah, I, I think what uh, you and I were talking about before we recorded the podcast was the fact that a lot of the changes people are making that we view as being at least partially in response to climate change are really being made because of profitability. So, for example, uh, the classic, uh, and I presented this uh, information at a, at a crop consultant conference a while back, uh, and the consultants came up and said they disagreed with the responses, that they their customers were making more changes in response to climate change than what they were perhaps claiming on the survey. But they were doing it because of profitability. So the classic uh, that that group brought up was the tremendous investments that many farmers are making in, in improving drainage. And of course, that's directly related to yield losses that they're observing on poorly drained fields with combine yield monitors. So it's a way to improve profitability, but it's also, from our perspective, a response to uh, the fact that we seem to be getting, um, and, the, and the climate scientists tell us we're getting uh, more uh, a higher frequency of these uh, high rainfall events, which puts a lot of stress on on drainage. And so um, I, I tend to agree with you. Maybe maybe we need to think about how to phrase these this climate question a little differently uh, going forward. I'll, we'll we'll give that some some more thought. So so Michael, uh, with with that, that kind of wraps up this month's survey. Um, 
For more details, you can go to the Purdue CME Group Ag Economy Barometer website, which is purdue.edu slash agbarometer. Um, we've got the full report out there, as well as a pretty complete set of charts that you can look at. And, of course, we also release a set of charts accompanying this uh, podcast, and you can take a look at those that Michael and I were kind of reviewing as we were discussing this month's survey results. So the next Ag Economy Barometer will be released in early November, that first Tuesday in November, so look for that. And then uh, I encourage you to share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. And so on behalf of my colleague, Michael Langemeyer, and the Purdue University Center for Agriculture, I'm James Mintert. Thanks for listening. <music>